I am Mark Faunfelder from Boing Boing, and this is Incredibly Interesting Authors. This is the first episode I've done in actually a number of years. So uh, if uh, you all of a sudden find this on your RSS feed, welcome again. I hope that I uh, can pick this podcast back up because I really enjoy interviewing authors of books, especially nonfiction books. And this time I have a really great interview with Gary Lockman, who is the author of a new book called Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. It basically answers a question of how Trump managed to become president of the United States. And we all know that it's a, a multifaceted answer to that question. It involves fear, racism, nationalism, populism, hatred, dirty tricks, manipulation, the thing that I didn't ever suspect was that occult beliefs and practices played a part in, in Trump becoming president. And in Lockman's book, I learned that occult and esoteric thinking permeates the alt-right and Putin's inner circle and even Trump himself. I had no idea that Trump was a devoted follower of the New Thought Movement, which started in the 19th century. Trump's family attended the Marble Collegiate Church it was headed by a pro-Christian nationalist named Norman Vincent Peale, and he promulgated this idea of positive thinking. He wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking, which has its roots in the New Thought Movement. And the, the idea is that you can use your mind to do things like cure yourself of disease, get rich, or in Trump's case, become president. Another thing I learned from the book that I didn't know before was that the alt-right bases much of its ideology on an Italian philosopher who was born in the late 19th century. His name was Julius Evola. He thought the problem with Mussolini was that he wasn't a big enough fascist. Also in the book is another character by the name of Alexander Dugan, who is a very influential Russian fascist philosopher. And he is kind of a Rasputin figure for Putin. And the books he writes are super popular bestsellers in Russia sold in supermarkets and um, just someone that we don't really here in the West know much about. Dugan pushes this idea that the only way to return Russia to greatness is by wiping liberal democracy off the face of the earth. And, and the United States is like the big enemy. Um, even though Dugan is really not that well known in the West, the alt-right and the dark enlightenment movement uh, in, in Europe and the United States who would love to install this kind of fascist regime that Dugan is advocating for, they are well aware of Dugan. Dark Star Rising introduced me to all of these different phenomena along with a lot of other related concepts like using the peppy, the frog memes as a form of chaos magic. Chaos magic is something that started in the UK in the 70s as kind of postmodern magical practice that stresses achieving desired outcomes through applied experimentation as opposed to rituals and symbols of traditional mystic practices. It's focused on results rather than, than ritual. Lockman is such a great writer. He's, he's written a number of books about occult studies, and he's just a, an amazing scholar of occult history, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of esotericism and a great skill to clearly explain complex ideas. And both of these come into play in Dark Star Rising. And what I really liked about this book, a couple of things. Um, one is that he really avoids describing any kind of paranormal efficacy to occult practices. 
and instead he presents what can and often does happen when zealous people apply their occult-influenced ideologies to the real world. And the other thing that I really liked about the book is that it doesn't try to create any conspiracy theories. Everything that he writes about is out in the open, covered by the mainstream media, but um, is still... Uh, when you when you see the big picture, there really is this undercurrent of of occult thinking in a lot of the alt right and and even Trump himself. So, uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Gary. Gary, it's really great to talk to you. I read Dark Star Rising, and the thing that struck me about it is that there are no conspiracy theories at all in this. You just like scratch the the surface a tiny bit, and all the stuff pops up. These people who have influenced Russian leaders and and the alt right. And I'm just curious how how did you come about writing this book? Like what what was the impetus for you to to write Dark Star Rising? Uh, well, first thing let me say I'm glad you say um, there weren't any conspiracy theories in it because um, you, you don't really need them. Um, uh, it, 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 you don't really need them for most kind of accounts of occult politics, but you certainly don't need them for what's happening today because it's um, it's just very much out in the open if if you know you know where to look for it. But the initial um, sort of trigger for the book was um, uh, I, I read something that um, Harvey Bishop, who is a, a New Thought blogger, um, he had posted, um, and it was about um, that strange. Uh, uh, scene at the uh, annual meeting of the National Policy Institute um, after just after Trump's um, election. Uh, National Policy Institute, you, you might know, is a rather innocuous sounding name for an organization that most people, you know, uh, see as a sort of white nationalist or uh, uh, white supremacist uh, group. And it, it, uh, the, the head of it, Richard Spencer, uh, at least he was the head of it at the time. And he's, you know, he's the founder of the alt-right and, and so on. And um, notoriously, what happened was that at the start of this meeting, uh, Spencer uh, addressed uh, the crowd uh, saying, we made this happen. You know, we made this victory. We willed Trump into office. We dream this to be true. And um, Bishop picked up on this because um, being a devotee of new thought, um, the whole idea of uh, sort of making your dreams come true uh, in some very direct um, sort of way by using the mind uh, was exactly what uh, new thought um, uh, followers are interested in. Uh, and he was, he was disturbed to see that, uh, uh, that uh, this whole uh, sort of philosophy of mental science of, of the mind being able to create reality uh, that has a long history uh, going back to the uh, sort of uh, late uh, 19th century. Uh, in America, um, but that it, it was possibly being used for, um, at least from his uh, perspective, uh, rather dubious uh, aims. And um, this started a kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, trail of, of different links um, connecting a variety of different sorts of kind of mental and magical uh, occult techniques for uh, influencing reality. Um, uh, as, as most people know these days, um, that uh, Trump himself is a devotee of positive thinking. Um, he was a familiar uh, figure at the Marble Collegiate Church on Fifth Avenue, New York, where Norman Vincent Peale 
um, who popularized the whole idea of, of positive thinking um, in his book that was a bestseller. Um, uh, Trump um, was there often. Um, he said that Norman Vincent Peale was one of the few people he respected and considered a mentor. And uh, Trump's own um, sort of self-help books like The Art of the Deal and others are full of all this sort of positive thinking um, uh, philosophy. And fundamentally, it means that if you, if you focus on some goal or some aim, um, persistently enough and, and vividly enough and powerfully enough and visualize it very clearly in your mind. Um, if you persist in this over time, it, it, it will eventually happen. It will come true. And strangely enough, um, Trump actually, you know, was elected. Um, you know, it, it was it was an upset. Uh, uh, you know, most people didn't think you know that was going to happen. And and so as I follow this trail, so you have um, this you know far right group um, practicing this kind of mental science in order to put Trump into office. Trump himself is is a, is a devotee of this philosophy. Um, and then you also see that. Uh, the way that they were supposed to have done this, um, um, Spencer and, and, and his alt-right uh, gang, uh, was through the internet, was through posting um, uh, different memes uh, and practicing something that um, is, came to be known as meme magic. Uh, and this was just big Pandora's box or, uh, uh, that uh, once you sort of lifted the lid, one thing led, led to the other. And as you say, it, it, it's, uh, it's global. Um, similar things are happening in Russia. Uh, at the same time. A, a lot of this information is out there, but it's kind of s scattered, a little disparate. I was just looking at The Economist, an April 5th article titled Understanding Putin by Understanding His Favorite Thinkers. And he, uh, the, the article specifically mentions uh, a, a character by the name of Lev Gumilev. Could you talk a little bit about him? Because I think he, he's one of the key kind of figures in, um, in all of this. Well, uh, certainly in Russia, uh, Gumilev is a um, fascinating, um, if if uh, well, if tragic um, uh, figure. Um, um, he uh, was the son of uh, two of Russia's um, greatest uh, poets, uh, Nikolai Gumilev, who was um, murdered by the Cheka, who was uh, Lenin's um, kind of uh, state police um, in uh, the early days of the Bolshevik. Um, uh, reign of terror, uh, the Red Terror, they called it. And his mother was uh, Anna Akhmatova, um, who um, survived, uh, but uh, was basically kept on a chain um, by um, uh, Stalin um, because um, of uh, keeping their son uh, in, in the gulag. Um, and this is Lev, Lev Gumilev. And um, uh, to make a, a sort of long story short, while Gumilev was in um, one of the prisons, um, he came across uh, the ideas of a emigre, um, uh, Russian emigre philosopher uh, uh, named uh, Nikolai Savitsky. Um, and um, Savitsky was part of a group of emigre thinkers who had um, left Russia and gone to Europe, um, different cities, Prague and Berlin uh, and Paris uh, in the 20s. Um, but they believed that the Bolsheviks um, regime wouldn't last, that it would soon collapse, uh, that they couldn't sustain itself. And that what they wanted to, was to be able to develop, come up with a new idea of what 
what Russia meant, the idea of being Russia. I mean, the whole the whole notion of a Russian idea that there's some peculiar uh, mystery or, or or destiny about about Russia is something that um, permeates all, all of Russian culture. Um, I'm actually researching a book about it now to follow up Dark Star Rising, um, and the idea that they hit upon is something that's called Eurasianism, and this is the sense that. Um, instead of seeing Russia as kind of a backward, um, uh, sort of far, far, uh, large, uh, you know, uh, frontier of, of Europe and always trying to catch up to European ideas. I mean, if you know Russian history, there's a long kind of, uh, uh, kind of um, process in which they've tried to adapt to certain um, Western ideas and then it kind of doesn't work and then they have a kind of uh, switch back to their ancient uh, sort of Slavic ways and so on. There's a, there's a whole long kind of conversation in Russian history about that. Um, and the whole idea was that, as I said, instead of Russia trying to be part of Europe, it actually was this whole new civilization that was coming into uh, its own now. Uh, and this is what they called Eurasia. And this was uh, a peculiar kind of um, ethnic uh, empire that uh, spread from, you know, the, the, the Western tip um, to Europe, always over to the East and Asia. And these Eurasianists started to um, understand Russian history in terms of uh, its Asian roots and the Mongols and the Tatars and Genghis Khan and things of that sort. Okay, so all this idea Gumilev uh, was, was absorbing. And um, he was sort of a, a historian, uh, um, a geographer. He, he wrote books about uh, the Mongols and he wrote books about the Tatars and uh, a variety of different um, ancient uh, peoples that uh, the Russians um, uh, were either informed by or, you know, uh, adapted and so on and so on. And um, he was <laughs> he, he spent a good deal of his life in in the Gulag. And it wasn't really until uh the late 1980s uh during the gorbachev years with the uh, glasnost and perestroika that um he was actually uh, allowed to publish his books um and uh allow- his ideas were allowed to be made public and because um he had been a victim of of the 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 soviet regime um he so had had this had this cachet of 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 being a kind of uh, martyr um, for the new Russia, for the free the free Russia, and um, suddenly books that he had written that had been prescribed and had been kept in secret places and in libraries were published on uh, Moss, and he became an overnight um, uh, kind of culture hero and uh, and and leader of the intelligentsia. I mean, uh, sadly, uh, he he only lived for a couple more years to enjoy this. Uh, and by um, sort of uh, just as the whole Soviet um, Union started to collapse in the early 90s, um, uh, he, he passed away. Um, but what happened after that was um, this very interesting character named Alexander Dugan, uh, who is still around and has been around for a long time um, uh, in different guises and uh, different uh, sort of uh, positions on the uh, – radical political spectrum uh, in Russia. Very chameleon-like character. Oh, very much. I mean, he started out as a sort of punk dissident um, in, in the 80s. And uh, now at different times, he's actually, you know, uh, he's actually walking through the corridors of power and, and, and um, you know, his ideas. But he picked up on this Eurasianist idea. He picked up on this idea of that Russia was, was, was a new separate 
um, total civilization uh, 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 in, in its own right and in its own self. Um, and that um, it basically was in this kind of perpetual war against um, what he called the Atlanticists. Uh, so for, for, um, for Dugan, there's this kind of fundamental uh, conflict going on in world history, and this is the motor by which history uh, moves. And it's a conflict between what he calls the Eurasian heartland, which is the, the mother of all continents, uh, Russia and you know, all of its kind of uh, lands that it has absorbed around it. And then um, the United States, uh, the UK, and uh, sort of the variety of other sort of Atla- Western Europe powers that are the seafaring um, peoples. And so uh, he has this very strange kind of occult history in which these two sort of uh, forces, the land and the sea, are in perpetual conflict. But the strange thing with uh, Dugan is that in his own way, he was kind of working this kind of meme magic as well, where he was projecting these ideas onto the internet and also through books and television appearances and things of that sort. And as I say, he's gone from being way out on the way, way fringe to actually, you know, at times having, having Putin's ear. Um, you know, he's sort of like Putin's Rasputin, as it were. Um, and um, he's actually had some effect. Um, I mean, in the book, um, uh, I, 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 in the book, I point out, I think, you know, uh, there's, there's good reason to believe that um, Putin's um, excursions into Crimea and then into Ukraine, um, you know, the last uh, four or five years, um, were informed in no small part by the sort of vision that Dugan has for this kind of um, Eurasian super civilization uh, to stretch out. And part of this is regaining you know, lands that were once part of the, you know, the old, the old Russian Empire. You wrote uh, in your your book. I thought this was a, a kind of a, a, a very brief summation of, of the book he wrote, "The Foundation of Geopolitics," which was like it sounds like it was a huge seller in Russia. But you you wrote the conflict was not between capitalism and communism, but between the decadent West, eager to spread its permissive liberal ideology through globalization, and a rising new holy Russia that stood for order and tradition and a multipolar world. Uh, what do you mean by multipolar? Well, this is this is a, a word that uh, Dugan and Putin and um, sort of anti-West um, ideologues and political thinkers use. Um, the basic idea is that um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you no longer have the Cold War. You no longer have these two superpowers um, kind of, you know, uh, sharing the globe. You only have one. You, you, you just have the one pole, which is kind of... Um, a misnomer because if you only have one, you can't just have one pole. <laughs> you know, you have to. You can't just have a north pole. You have to have a south. But you know, um, just let's 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 let that slide. And the idea was that instead of there being just this one power that was increasingly going to absorb the the world, um, th- there should be a sort of plurality. Um, uh, and uh, this is the idea that uh, the Russia uh, was supposed to be sort of uh, leading. Um, the, the the campaign for to have a world that's not dominated just by the West and and this was born of um, the whole idea uh, in uh, Francis Fukuyama's book in the early nineties uh, about the end of history uh, where he takes this the, he takes the very Hegelian line that um, basically with the rise of liberal li- liberal democracies and the free market history in the sense of the actualization of freedom. Um, ha- has been achieved. So um, 
uh, it's the end of history, not in the sense that nothing's going to happen anymore, but in the sense that this kind of aim of history has, has been, has been arrived at. It's, it's, it's been achieved. And, uh, this was something that, um, you know, uh, other philosophers had said earlier, there's a famous series of lectures by Alexandria Koyevi, who was a Russian emigre who went to Paris. Um, he gave in the 30s uh, in Paris at the Sorbonne and people like Sartre and Merleau-Ponty and André Breton and, you know, many of the, the French elite um, were at these lectures. And he, he basically argued the same point, that um, following sort of the Hegelian dialectic trajectory of history will arrive at some point, something like a kind of global economy, something like a global um, kind of liberal, um, you know, democracy. And, you know, that's it. That, that's the best we can hope for. Uh, and, you know, and so, and, and, and this view outraged Dugan because he, he, he just saw it as this kind of world of insipid kind of Western, um, you know, uh, uh, ego-centered uh, indulgence and, and uh, neoliberal, um, you know, material uh, uh, kind of, um, um, you know, this, 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 this sort of world that's just about, you know, creature comforts and, and having a high standard of living and so on and so on. And um, what he want, you know, what, Dugan and strangely enough, um, people like Richard Spencer uh, and the alt right, um, what they turn to uh, to give them some idea of an alternative um, is the philosophy of uh, the Italian far right um, esotericist uh, Julius Evola. Now, uh, Evola is someone again who's who's come into the strange um, uh, world of. Uh, you know, 21st century occult politics, because you might remember that uh, last year or so, um, uh, or just before the election, um, uh, the, the New York Times um, ran an article uh, in which they had um, become aware of this talk that Steve Bannon had given to a select uh, group of conservative uh, 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 churchmen at, um, at the Vatican. Um, he wasn't actually there. He was somewhere in Los Angeles, but via Skype, he was, he was, uh, giving them a talk. Uh, and, um, during the talk, he touches on, uh, Evola. He, he sort of name checks him and, uh, he, he, he talks about, uh, traditional values. He kind of mixes up the idea of traditional values with, um, the, this very strict philosophy that uh, school of philosophy that Evola belongs to called the traditionalists, uh, which we can say are, is, uh, they're sort of a kind of fundamental esotericist. They're, they're, there's a very strict authoritarian um, uh, temper uh, to the way they approach this. Uh, but I mean, that in itself was strange that the New York Times should, you know, um, sort of name check uh, Evola sort of in the, the headline for this column about this talk bound and give because he wasn't particularly known. And um, uh, I mean, they, 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 it's, well, what do you want to say? I mean, they, they, they got a kind of half right about him. Uh, uh, Evola did try to ingratiate himself with uh, Mussolini. Uh, and then he kind of lost interest because he didn't think the Italians were sort of uh, the right material for the kind of absolute fascism that um, uh, Evola was trying to uh, arrive at, you know, and what was wrong with Mussolini was that uh, he wasn't fascist enough. Uh, for him, and then he tried to ingratiate himself with uh, uh, Hitler um, and, and the Nazis, and he made some head, headway uh, with some of the people in the SS. But in the long run, they kind of uh, had no use for him because, uh, well, he had the, he had he had this very interesting idea about um, 
this kind of more sophisticated kind of spiritual racism um, uh, where he, he felt, I mean, to do, to give him justice, Evola wasn't a thug like the Nazis. And, uh, you know, uh, although he blackened his hands, you know, quite badly by, um, you know, breaking bread with them, but um, he had this idea that um, this kind of biological racism was just very crude um, and, and stupid. And what was, you know, really important was the sort of spiritual, you know, the kind of inner, inner character. And he basically argued one could, one could be biologically, uh, Semitic, but have an Aryan soul, and vice versa. But um, this this eventually confused them so so much that they they thought this just just is very just very impractical. So they didn't have any use for him. So he uh, Evola sort of didn't succeed in um, what he wanted to do was to use either fascism or Nazism in order to sort of uh, uh, spread uh, th- this ideas about traditionalism so that he could actually you know help create a kind of traditionalist civilization. But when that failed. Uh, post World War uh, Two, uh, he became the kind of doyen of of, the, of a new far right, um, and uh, he's he's a brilliant writer. I mean, he he's he's certainly not a raving uh, lunatic or anything. And this is one of the things that that's dangerous about him. And this was something that uh, the German writer Hermann Hesse, when uh, writing a review about uh, Evola, said he was a very dangerous writer because he is intelligent and he has some very good arguments against you know against the the left and liberalism and and democracy and all of that. But um, his his alternatives are, you know, uh, the, the cure is, you know, uh, worse than worse than the disease. What kinds of ties does Evola and this kind of authoritarian movement have in common with the Dark Enlightenment? I read this quote from Peter Thiel in in the Dark Enlightenment essay by Nick Land, where Thiel said was quoted as saying, "I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible." Is that why the alt-right and Russia seem to be aligned, or, or the alt-right and Putin, at least, seem to be aligned in so many ways because they see democracies as being a, a flawed way to, to do things? Well, I think the main thing is that um, they're, they see what's happened in the West and, and uh, certainly uh, mostly in America, the kind of neoliberalism uh, that's got itself uh all wrapped up in all these sort of um sort of uh very what do you want to call kind of sophisticated issues around gender and things of that sort uh and that they are spreading from their point of view they're spreading a particular kind of ideology that's tied up with this sort of end of history notion and that um, you know the fundamental kind of uh, uh idea of the aim of Western civilization now is this kind of economic globalization uh, and this kind of um, neoliberal spread of uh, this kind of, uh, what do you want to call it, kind of absolute tolerance uh, sort of uh, situation, uh, which they feel is going to kind of eventuate in this kind of homogeneity where there'd be this you know kind of bland sameness and um i mean and you you don't have to belong to the alt-right or you know be on the far right to recognize that there's a certain kind of homogeneity involved with globalization and that you know you travel and you get someplace and you you know there's the same cafes there's the same shops and all that so the whole idea of local color and and the differences between cultures and all that are uh, slowly being eroded um and um but they they tend to enjoy a kind of authoritarian uh, kind of uh, sensibility. And, I, you know, I have to say for myself, where I'm, I, I'm sure there are some 
many individuals who actually, you know, really do like the authoritarian uh, kind of way of things. I, I think a lot of it is also um, a kind of, uh, you know, piss take, as they say here, uh, to uh, to all this, you know, absolute tolerance and liberalism and, you know, all the, the variety of uh, different kinds of, uh, uh, you know, gender and so on and so on, um, cultural changes that they, they find you know, uh, just becoming, um, the norm. Uh, and so in a way it's kind of like, you know, just, just, you know, how transgressive can you be now? You know, you can be transgressive by being, you know, very conservative. You can be transgressive by being, you know, uh, uh, right wing and, 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 and that sort of thing. And I, I, I remember, you know, when I was doing the research for the book, um, when the alt-right were first kind of, you know, coming into the news, there were some magazine articles that were making them look like they were in GQ or something. Like, here's the new cool, you know, the new cool conservative hipsters and all that. So it was almost like a fashion, a fashion kind of thing. Um, but I, I think fundamentally the idea is that, um, it's the belief in what we can call a more traditional society. Uh, where, you know, there is, uh, kind of belief in a transcendental value. There are, there are, there are, you know, very firm ideas of good, uh, and evil. There's a firm sort of social order, uh, not this kind of chaos and kind of self-indulgence that they feel the West has kind of, uh, drifted into. Um, and I, as I say in the book, this is one of the problems is, and, you know, I, I, I think, you don't have to belong to a far right group or to have far right sensibilities to be aware of, uh, the excesses, let's say, of a kind of, um, super tolerant, super liberal society. There have been, you know, voices within the West itself that have, you know, um, uh, made criticisms of this that are not as extreme. Um, but, um, I think we're in a time when that kind of centrist vision just is very difficult to be heard these days. And it's, 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 it's very, very polarized, uh, now. Um, and you know, some of them like Dugan, I mean, this is the kind of thing that he wants to happen. He wants to have more polarization. He wants to have more conflict. He wants to have more things shaken up. He, and the thing too, is like Putin is, what do you want to say? Encouraging, helping, um, uh, giving his uh, imprimatur to the variety of sort of more, right-oriented um, uh, politics that's taking place on uh, in Europe, um, you know, and, uh, you know, for all the kind of uh, bellicose exchange now between Putin and, and Trump, they were like buddies, you know, so uh, they had a bromance going. Uh, this is like a global thing, you know, the first, the first step in that this direction was Brexit here, um, when uh, Nigel Farage and um, UKIP, you know, got, got, did what they were supposed to do, uh, basically got the UK out of, uh, the European union. And then the next, that, that was sort of the overture. Then the full on, you know, uh, performance was Trump. Um, and then there was, you know, the idea that this right, right, this kind of right wave was going to carry across Europe. And it did to some extent. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, Le Pen didn't get elected and Wilders didn't, but, um, you know, Viktor Orban has just got a, a third term and there, there's a, you know, a, a far right or very right wing government in Poland now. So, I mean, this is still going on. Um, and, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, uh, as I say, what I'm doing now is I'm researching a book precisely about this holy, this holy Russia idea where, uh, this is being revived. This was, this was something that was part of Russian 
history and 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 idea of itself, you know, before the Bolsheviks. As I said, they had there's there's always been this idea that somehow Russia itself was some kind of key to world history, and the Russian people were had this kind of messianic or millenarian destiny ahead of them to to sort of accomplish something. And um, you know, Putin and other other figures in, I mean. Uh, I mean, you have to, you know, you have to take in consideration. I mean, uh, Russia's gone through an incredible, uh, you know, topsy-turvy, chaotic time, um, you know, from from the early 90s until now. So it's not surprising that uh, through all the chaos that they've gone through, uh, economic, social, um, you know, a variety of different uh, uh, fractures that uh, a kind of strong leader that would pull the country together um, would be something they would desire. And, um I think what's happened is Putin's gone through uh, like the first decade or so of his uh, uh, administration, uh, as I talk about in the book, was about creating this whole kind of false reality, this whole kind of virtual reality in Russia itself, where he controlled all the media. And, you know, he basically, uh, his, 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 his vizier, this fellow named uh, Ladislav Surkov, uh, was brilliant at kind of creating this kind of fake opposition political parties. He would invent political parties and put them on television and they would have a fake discussion and, you know, a fake debate. So it gave the appearance that there was, oh, it was incredible. I mean, that, that's, I mean, he's an incredible figure. He's sort of not, not in the news anymore. Uh, but there was this whole, I mean, you talk about Trump and reality TV. I mean, again, this is another sort of theme that runs through the whole book. It's this whole, we're in this whole period now where the distinction between reality and television and true and false and all of that is, you know, broken down and, um, you know, things keep, things keep jumping from one side of the fence to the other, or there is no fence anymore. Um, but after like about a decade of that, this kind of, um, invented world that, um, Surkov was, was, uh, was creating in Russia, um, he, people, he could sense that people got sort of tired of it. And the, the next thing that Putin, um, sort of got hold of was this whole, this idea of Holy Russia, this idea of, uh, Russia as being, you know, the, the traditionalist, um, civilization that is, is not going to go the way the West is going. It's not going, you know, with this whole me generation and, you know, reality is just absolutely up for grabs and I can be whatever I want. So, you know, if I wake up today and I think I'm one sex, that's fine. And tomorrow I'm another and so on and so on. No, we're not doing that. We're, we're, we're going back to the old ways and all that. And, um, you know, the church has become very important again, uh, in, in Russian politics and, and, um, and Putin himself. I mean, he, he, he has, you know, uh, very many photo ops, um, in, uh, in, in religious settings or with, you know, religious leaders and actually quite a few, what I understand from what I've been reading, quite a few people that are in the church now are, are ex KGB men, like <laughs> just, just as, uh, just as he was. And so, uh, yeah. My final question would be, um, Steven Pinker now has written a couple of books about how we have basically been on a trajectory towards more and more progress ever since the Enlightenment. And I, and I think it's a pretty persuasive case. He backs it up with number of war deaths and things like that. Do you think this kind of anti-Enlightenment movement that Russia and the far-right elements in the United States and Europe uh, that, that we're seeing now, do you think that they are posing a threat to that kind of trajectory of progress? I think, yeah, I, I think they do because um, I think – well, for all the progress, you know, throughout that whole time, there's there's always been uh, a kind of counterculture, let's say, 
and I don't just mean the hippies when I'm saying that, but I mean, you know, you know, brilliant people like, uh, William Blake and the German poet Goethe and, you know, I can name a variety of philosophers and who have always, uh, said, yes, we have all this, this progress in terms of, you know, material comfort and, and, you know, standard of living, but we're losing track of, uh, the inner world. We're losing track of, um, the spiritual, the soul, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this goes back, you know, uh, this is, again, it goes back to Blake. This goes back to the, you know, the, the beginning of the romantic movement. So there's always been, people that were aware that for everything we're gaining with it, there, there's some things that are lost. And you also have people say, yes, that's right, but that's a kind of nostalgia and that we have to give up this kind of, you know, sense and all that and just kind of get used to the way things are. But I mean, again, that I think is um, something that in the long run, it's inadequate. So, um, but we don't necessarily need uh, a, a kind of theocratic, autocratic um, uh you know, culture in the sense that, uh, uh, this, this, this kind of holy Russia is often idealized as, as, uh, um, as the answer to that. And in fact, I mean, one of the, one of the things you, you were talking about, um, how, um, uh, writers in the West now, you know, uh, political critics are starting to take notice of like actually, um, uh, Putin's reading material and, and what he's asking his sort of regional governors to read. And, and they, they're really, they're starting to understand that, you know, well, it, whatever we think about this whole idea that, you know, the decadent West and this kind of, uh, holy, you know, uh, uh, traditional Russia, uh, they're taking it seriously. And I mean, what I'm, I'm, I'm and, and the people that Putin is asking, his regional governors to read are actually very important philosophers. Uh, you know, uh, Vladimir Soloviev, he's like one of the greatest Russian philosophers. Um, another Nikolai Berdyaev, who was uh, a, a Christian existentialist ex-Marxist, who was one of the emigres who lived in Paris for a long time. Um, and so these people are, you know, they're, they're actually very uh, deep, uh, profound passion, passionate and committed sort of thinkers. And, and they do have a vision that, that, is deeper than than the Western uh, vision uh, of um, sort of. Th- 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 I think the thing what's happened in the West is that we you know we 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 don't have a, a spiritual uh, we don't have anything spiritual to offer. Uh, wh- what we have what we have are the Enlightenment values. They're absolutely very good values. Uh, no one wants to jettison them, but they're, they're inadequate to cover everything about human nature. And this is the reason why you've had the the centuries long kind of counter tradition of the romantics and also the esoteric hermetic tradition that I, that I write about in, in other books of mine. I mean, again, you know, um, very hardcore enlightenists, we might say, you know, the kind of materialist reductionist scientists, scientistic scientists today would say, well, that's all rubbish. We just have to, you know, finally get rid of, but we never do get rid of it. It's always there. And I think it's always there because it is, somehow part of ourselves and it is somehow in some way indicative of what reality is like in some way and i mean it sounds you know incredibly banal and also incredibly uh kind of uh idealistic but we do have to in some way bring these two things kind of together um and you know i don't know possibly if uh in the way it's kind of split up now at least in the way that um these Russian thinkers are seeing it. Maybe this is a way that if we kind of can get through uh, this, this, this period now, which is a very, you have to, you have to realize it's, it's, I'm sure you do, Mark, this is, this is a very, very 
strange time we're going through. And it's not just words. It, it is at a strange time where the ideas by which we understand things are really, you know, uh, undergoing a great change. And so um, most of it seems to us as scary and, and, you know, something that we have to be apprehensive about. But it is possible, and it usually is during these kinds of times, that something new and, and unthought of, unexpected, can, can kind of come out of it. So, I mean, that's, I guess, my hope to put it in, in, in that kind of way. But I'm not holding my breath, but at least this is something I think it, the possibility of that is here. That concludes my interview with Gary. And you can get his book. It's available now on Amazon and in bookstores. If you liked Incredibly Interesting Authors, you can go to boingboing.net and search on Incredibly Interesting Authors and listen to the other interviews that I've done with people. Thanks a lot for listening.